Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Bezalel, and by the princes of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good to see you guys. Uh, We're back in Mark this week after taking a break last week. And um, we said at the very beginning of this study, we've been kind of marching through the book of Mark, kind of looking at um, the story of Jesus' life. This book, the Gospel of Mark, is a unique kind of book. In fact, when Mark wrote it, it was the very first of its kind that had ever been written. He invented a whole new genre. So it's a biography of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It communicates facts. It tells the story, the history of Jesus. It's true, but that's not what makes it unique. There have been a lot of biographies back then and today. And what makes this one unique is it's a biography and a confrontation. It's a biography and a challenge to anyone who reads it. So unlike any biography, any other biography that had ever been written, and most that are still written, it says, what are you going to do about it? All right? So I love reading biographies. I'm a big fan. I'm actually in two right now. Unbroken. Anybody read Unbroken? Okay, so it's the story of Louis Zemperini. He was an Olympic runner, turned shipwrecked airman in World War II, turned POW, and it's like super intense, okay, but super good. I'm also in one on Leonardo da Vinci, which is pretty fascinating too, because he was like this eccentric genius. So um, I call biographies pirated wisdom because basically you can read about another person's life You can gather the wisdom that they had gathered from their experiences and and from their failures and successes, but you don't have to, like, 
go through all the trouble that they went through to get those experiences and that wisdom, right? You just get to steal it. It's like pirated wisdom. But here's the thing. At no point in these two biographies that I'm in or any other biography that I've ever read does Zamperini or Da Vinci turn from the story of their life and look out the pages of the book and look at me and say, so what are you going to do about it, right? That doesn't happen in most biographies, but that's exactly what happens in this unique biography about Jesus, which is the book of Mark. Jesus looks out at the pages and he says, what are you going to do about what you see me doing and hear me saying in these pages? Because in his life, the, the, the life that Mark is recording for us here of Jesus, he's, he's walking around doing incredible things, right? I mean, he's casting out demons, he's healing lepers, he's healing the lame and the blind, and then he's saying incredible things. That He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand because I came, repent and believe. He says, your sins are forgiven. He says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him, and after he's killed, three days later, he's going to rise again. I mean, imagine if you had a buddy at work or school who was saying the sort of things that Jesus said. It's crazy. So Jesus says to one of his early followers in the book of Mark, but really he says it to anyone who will ever read this book for the rest of time and the rest of human history. Jesus looks out of the pages of the book at us, and he says, who do you say that I am? In other words, the ball's in your court now. What are you going to do about it? Now that you've heard my story, now that you've heard my claims, what are you going to do about it? Mark wrote a book in some ways that we start off reading, but pretty soon we figure out that we're not reading the book so much. It's reading us, right? It, we must contend with the Jesus that we find here. All of us have to decide what to make of this man. And that's exactly what our passage this morning is about. It shows us that there's only three possible ways to contend with Jesus, to, to respond to him after what we've heard and seen that he's done in his life. When you encounter the real Jesus of the Bible, you're only left with three possible responses. And we see them all right here in our passage. All right? the, the, the breadth of possible responses. We see Jesus' family's response. We see the religious leader's response. And then what I'm going to call the sitter's response. All right? We'll get to that one in a little bit. Cliffhanger. Got to wait to see what that one's about. All right. So for each of these possible ways to respond to Jesus, I want to look at how um, the, uh, their response looked 2,000 years ago when they met Jesus um, in the flesh as a man. And then I also want to ask the question, what does that same response look like today in our world and in our lives? So before we jump into this, let me just pray for us, and then we're going to look at these three possible ways to respond to the real Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do ask that if we open your word now, you promise that in your word there's power for transformation, that there's power for change, and you promise that as we open it, this is where we meet you. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, we would encounter the real Jesus, that we would meet the man who claimed these things and said these things and did these things, and that we would not leave unchanged, but that you would be at work in our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, option one. Here's one way that you can respond to the real Jesus. This is the family's answer. 
How does Jesus' own family, his brothers, his sisters, his mom, his dad, uh, who do they say that he is? They say he's a crazy person. All right, look at verse, chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus went home. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, this guy's out of his mind, okay? This is one legitimate way that you can respond to the real Jesus of the Bible. Option one is crazy Jesus, that he's just too far out there to be taken seriously. Now, that doesn't seem very nice right off the bat, but let's just be fair. Put yourself in his family's shoes, okay? I mean, these guys, like, grew up with him. I mean, this was his mom who changed his diaper. This was his brothers who saw him in his awkward junior high phase, you know, when he was kind of still growing into his body. This was his dad who, like, taught him to shave. I mean, these guys, like, they've been around Jesus from day one, okay? They've seen him grow up, and they're very, very familiar with him. So familiar, actually, that they've actually become inoculated to the power and sort of the radical claims that he's making now that he begins his ministry. You guys know how inoculation works, right? Inoculation is, is vaccination. Um, inoculation is when you're exposed to something in such small doses that it removes the power of the full dosage of that thing. Now, when we're, when we're talking about diseases, that's actually a great thing. We want to be inoculated to diseases. When we're talking about Jesus, not so great, right? When uh, there is something I've noticed over the years. I did ministry, um, how do you guys know this, a college ministry at Northwestern University for a number of years before coming here. And even before that, I did high school ministry at a church. And something I've noticed over the years is that um, you know who does not get embarrassed by Jesus very easily. Um, you know who's not very aware of how crazy he really is sometimes? It's new converts. It's people who have just heard the power of the message of Jesus for the first time. So there's this guy in our group at Northwestern, and he is the man. His name's Eugene. He's a student from Seoul, Korea, and he was in America studying at Northwestern. And when he walked into our group meeting and I opened up the Bible and started preaching from it, it was literally the first time he had ever opened a Bible. It was the first time he'd ever heard the news of the gospel. And he was like, he was locked in, right? I mean, like he sat in the front row right here. He'd have been in one seat in front of Susan. And as I was preaching, he was raising his hand and asking me questions. Right? He was like, wait, say it. What, what about that part? Say that again. I mean, he was like zoned in. The power of this message was so compelling to him, he was not at all embarrassed to chase it down, right? To, to figure out what this Jesus was all about. So within two months of opening the Bible for the first time, this young man became a Christian, okay? And uh, after he became a Christian, after he realized that the truths of Jesus so transformed his life, he was, uh, he was an evangelistic machine, right? He didn't know Jesus was a weird guy. So he was constantly talking to his atheist friends and his, you know, all these like genius math kids in his department, and he was constantly telling them about Jesus. He didn't know how weird he was. He didn't know how weird Jesus was. This is what he knew. He knew his life had been transformed, right? He knew that there was a power and a hope and a salvation available in this man that his friends needed, 
And it just did not bother him. He didn't even sense the weirdness or the awkwardness. He was bold, he was zealous, and he told his friends about Jesus. You know who does get embarrassed by Jesus easily? I think those of us who have been around Jesus for a long time. Those of us who have grown up with him, just like his siblings and his mom kind of grew up with him. Um, It's easy to become inoculated, I think, to the radical call of Jesus in our lives. And frankly, just the -the off-the-wall stuff we really do believe as Christians. I mean, if you've grown up hearing about the resurrection from the time that you um, could think and conceptualize these things, it doesn't seem that weird. The resurrection's crazy, okay? There was a dead guy who is now alive. That's the craziest thing that we can believe, but I think those of us who have grown up with it have become inoculated to it. And I actually think it uh, is easy for us to sometimes get embarrassed when Jesus starts talking about some of the stuff he talks about, right? I mean, we like being Christians, but we also like to fit in. We also kind of want to be in the normal, like, zone of normal people. Uh, we, we want to have Jesus in our lives, but we want people um, who we know to sort of meet the, the culturally normal Jesus, you know, the one who like easily fits in. And so we invite Jesus along, but we ask him to keep quiet when he insists on talking about stuff like, you know, I don't know, sexual ethics or um, how we should spend our money or judgment or hell or social justice. I mean, Jesus gets a little awkward pretty quickly, right, when you invite him to a cocktail party. So we want Jesus in our lives, but we might not want him to meet all of our friends, or we might not want him to go to all the places that we go. And we're not alone. Look down at verse 31. It says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called for him to come out. This posture of standing outside the house This is a posture of indecision. It's a posture you can easily run off if things get tough or awkward or hard. I mean, they want Jesus in their life. They want to receive some of the residual benefits of being near him, but they want an out, too. They want a hedge, right? They want to be able to uh, commit when it's easy and maybe not commit when it's not. That's option one. You can respond to the real Jesus of the Bible by calling him crazy. And that's at least an honest response, because he really does make some radical claims, and he really does push us in some uncomfortable directions. I think this is an easy way for us to respond today. What's option number two? The religious leader's response. How, does the, how do Jesus' religious opponents, the scribes, respond to Jesus. Who do they say he is? Well, they don't say he's crazy. They say he's evil, right? Let's look at verse 22. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. They say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. In other words, Jesus and all who stand with Jesus are one of the central problems with our world. He and his followers are evil, and they should be stopped. Now, again, there have always been militant opponents to Christianity throughout history. Um, Those who take any chance publicly and aggressively to discount the Christian faith. The new atheists today are not that new, okay? They've been around forever, and frankly, their arguments aren't even that good, but we won't get into that right now. But before we see how Jesus responds to these opponents, 
then and now, it's important to see that this reaction to Jesus, that he's evil, okay, it, it's actually not only fair, but it's, it's respectable, all right? Th- this reaction to the real Jesus of the Bible is actually very, it's intellectually honest, okay? What do I mean? Jesus claimed to be God. Again, if you just kind of go through the, the things he says in these Gospels, he claims to be God himself. And thousands, if not millions of people in history have put their life on the line and lost their life because of these claims, okay? And millions and maybe billions of people throughout history have committed their entire lives to what he said, okay? We're building our lives around the claims of this man. And if they're not true, he's not a good guy, okay? He's an evil guy. If everything that Jesus says he, he is and everything that the Bible claims that he did is not true, he's not a respectable guy. He's an evil guy. I mean, the Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection's not true, we who follow Jesus, we are above all most to be pitied. We're throwing our lives away if this is not true. And that's an evil thing to ask people to do right? If it's not true. If Jesus knows what he is saying, or if Jesus knows what he's saying and all of it, down to the smallest detail, isn't true, they're right. He isn't a good man. He's an evil one. So how does Jesus respond to this this option? How does he respond to these men? Well, he basically says two things. The first we're not going to spend any time on, really. The first he basically just says, guys, Put your thinking caps on, all right? Consider the logic of this for a minute. Now, we don't have time to look at this, but we're going to examine probably this another time. But I love this about Christianity. I absolutely love this about the Bible and the Gospels. All through its pages, it is regularly and consistently telling us to think more about faith, right? It's telling us to to put our thinking caps on, to reason it out, to, to, to consider the logic of the Gospel. The Bible never tells us to turn our brains off. It never tells us to leap in with blind faith. It never tells us um, to like just believe and quit asking such hard questions. The Bible constantly pushes us to, like, no, no, ask the hard questions. Reason it out. Think about it. Because the faith that we follow is a reasonable faith, right? The, the mind is actually going to lead us into more and more trust of Jesus because it's true, because it comports with reality. All right? That's Jesus' first response. He just says, look, guys, it doesn't make any sense. If I'm with Satan, why would I be against Satan? Think about it. All right? But we're not going to spend time on that. Second, what he does, and I think maybe more important for our purposes this morning, is a warning. Jesus gives a warning. And here we actually come to one of the strangest and hardest to understand things that Jesus ever says in the Bible. All right? Verses 28 to 30. He says, truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What in the world is the one unforgivable sin? All right? And have I committed it? And would I even know if I did? And did I do it this morning before breakfast? Okay, so what is this thing that we're talking about? This is one of those verses that Christians have wrestled over a lot. And let me just say, there is something to fear here. There is 
a, a sort of... There, Jesus says it's for a reason. There's a warning. There is something to be afraid of here, but I think it's important we put the fear in the right place. Uh, many women and men wiser than me have said, if you're afraid that you've committed the unforgivable sin, it's probably a really, really good sign that you haven't. Okay? Now, I think that's really wise, and I think that's true. But why? Why is that true? Because in the context of this interaction, Jesus is describing a person who has fully committed to option two. Okay, fully committed to the fact that Jesus is evil and that his purposes in this world should be stopped. And Jesus is warning his listeners that staying on this path will lead to a firm, fixed, committed opposition to Jesus and to his mission. And that does not end well. If you're opposed to the only source of forgiveness and eternal life in the universe— then you have made yourself unforgivable. Okay, you, You're running in the opposite direction of forgiveness and life. And that's what Jesus is saying is the unforgivable sin. By definition, you've sort of placed yourself over here by running away from Jesus. N.T. Wright clarifies it for us, as he often does. He wrote this. Once you label what is in fact the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil, there's no way back. It's like holding a conspiracy theory. All the evidence you see is going to simply confirm your belief. You will be blind to the truth. It isn't that God gets especially angry with one particular sin. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is actually a murderer, you're never going to consent to the operation. So the unforgivable sin, it's not a one-time thing that we can sort of accidentally do. Okay, like, whoops, I said the wrong thing. That was the unforgivable sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What it is, is a fixed opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. So even though we might not stand up here this morning and declare that Jesus is evil, I do still think there's something here for us. I don't think we can wiggle out of this, of these hard words from Jesus quite as easily as we would like to. Because the question is, do you and I have any opposition to Jesus in our hearts? Uh, do, we, do we have any small acts of rebellion to his kingdom that creep up from inside of us? Any insistence on our own way of doing things instead of his way of doing things? Our own purposes for our day instead of his purposes for our day? I mean, do we find ourselves believing that our way is wiser than his or better than his or even that we're more loving than him? I mean, of course we do. All of us do this, right? This is the human condition. We're all born in rebellion to God, and we're constantly, the, the, we're, that's constantly creeping up in our hearts, this rebellion to God's way. And that's why I think that sensitivity to this verse, a certain kind of holy fear of committing this sin by committing ourselves entirely to our own way instead of God's way, is actually a great spiritual sign, okay? Being a little bit afraid of this verse is a good thing. Because what it means is you're sensitive to God's word. It means that you do want to know him, you do want to listen to him and follow him, and, um, and, and commit to him as king, even though you sometimes don't at the same time, right? And man, if that isn't the Christian life, if that isn't the life of faith, my favorite prayer in the whole Bible, we're going to get to it in a few chapters in the book of Mark, is when a man says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. 
I mean, what a great Christian prayer. Of, of, of course I believe. I want to believe. Help all the ways I don't believe. Help all those little rebellions in my heart that are against you. Jesus, help my unbelief. We should all pray that prayer every day, if not every hour. This warning from Jesus, it's firm, but it's so kind. It's so gracious. Jesus, help our unbelief. Forgive our small rebellions against your grace and heal our opposition to your good reign as king in our lives. Some who encounter Jesus think he's crazy. Others who encounter Jesus think he's evil. What I'm trying to help us see is that we uh, are actually both of those a lot of the time. But there's a third option too. Some who encounter Jesus simply sit at his feet in the posture of a committed follower and they worship him as God and king. I'm calling this last way to respond to Jesus the sitter's way, and here's why. Verse 34. Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The sitters, they just sit. They don't do anything. They don't don't have to earn their their entrance. They don't have to, uh, you know, pass the exam to get in. They just show up and they sit at Jesus' feet, and they're committed to being near Jesus. They want to be with him. And if that isn't a definition of Christianity, I don't know what is. Trusting Jesus is who he is, and believing his wild, beautiful promises, embracing the difficult call in your life, simply looks like sitting at his feet and not going anywhere. Right? The Lord, the King, the Savior, and our only Hope. I mean, these folks, can they answer all the theological questions that those highfalutin' scribes are going to press them on? No way. They say, I'm sticking with Jesus, right? Is their life a shining example as, of humanity as it's meant to be lived? No. As, as we unpack the Gospels, we'll see who some of these characters are. This is not a shining example of, of humanity, but they're sticking with Jesus, Right? Did they know how the rest of their life was going to go? I mean, was being with Jesus going to make it easier for them or harder? Was it going to be more comfortable or more difficult? Was it going to be embarrassing and awkward sometimes or like the fast road to the hip club? Like, no, they have no idea how it's going to turn out, but they're sticking with Jesus, right? The sitters, they just sit. He can be crazy, he can be evil, or he can be our savior and our king, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he wasn't commenting on this passage, but he could have been, and he probably was. And he wrote this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. C.S. Lewis is English, so his humor is English. Um, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. And then this great Oxford professor, right, this just brilliant intellectual mind, 
goes on to say, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange, terrifying, or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was God. Right? C.S. Lewis. What a dude. This is worth pressing for a minute. Because I think by far the most common way that our culture relates to Jesus today is as a great moral teacher, right? I would even go so far as to say that um, a large portion of those who consider themselves Christians today largely relate to Jesus as a great moral teacher. I mean, we hold up Jesus as an example to follow, be more like him, or hold up his teachings and commands and say, go do this. You know, one version, there's a version of this that's more liberal, that highlights the social justice imperatives of the Bible. There's another version of this that's more conservative, that highlights the purity and the personal piety that the Bible calls us to. But both primarily see Jesus as an example or as a great moral teacher. Does Jesus call us to all of these things? Of course he does. Is his life an incredible example? Of course it is. But if that is all Jesus is, For you, if that's all Christianity boils down to, whether liberal or conservative, then the real, that is not the real Jesus that we encounter in the Bible. I mean, not a single person in the Gospels encounters Jesus and says, What a good guy. He's sharp, he's thoughtful, he's kind. I wish there was more cut from the same cloth, right? No, no, no. You encounter the real Jesus and your life is shaken, okay? The three options, the three ways people respond are the three that we've seen today. They call him crazy, he's out of his mind. They call him evil, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Or they fall at his feet, and like the centurion at the cross, they say, surely this man was the son of God. Those are your options, one, two, or three. There's a great confusion about what Christianity is in our world. The Bible is just simply not about what we should do. It does tell us what to do. God made the life, our life. He made the world. He knows how it's supposed to work. But the Bible is not about what we need to do for God. The Bible is about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he forgave our sins. And all of his promises are tied up in that central event. And if what he did was actually true, and if what he said was actually true, like C.S. Lewis says, there's only one reasonable response, right? There's only one logical, thoughtful way to respond to God, and that's to throw ourselves at his feet and to rest under his words and his teaching and his promises, to submit to him as Lord and King, to be sitters at his feet, or as he says in John 15, to abide in him, right? Just to be with Jesus, It's going to cost us something. Of course it's going to cost us something, right? It's going to cost us our autonomy. We don't get to decide what we want to do all the time. It's going to cost us uh, difficulty. It's going to be awkward sometimes because he really does say weird stuff. Uh, People are going to think we're crazy because they thought he was crazy. People are going to think we're evil because they thought he was evil. It will cost us something to follow Jesus, but the gifts that pour out of this man far outweigh the costs of what it would be required to follow him. I mean, consider the gifts that flow out of Jesus to his people. The gifts of forgiveness, the gifts of eternal life, the gifts of a, a adoption into his family. And as he says here, inclusion in the very family of God. It's these that sit at my feet that are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. 
It's a new family. The qualification to follow Jesus is simply this. Sit down and rest in his promises to you. Rest at the feet of your king. Rest your soul in the work he's already done. Rest your meaning and your purpose in his glory. Rest your hope in his resurrection life. When you stick with Jesus, abiding in faith, sitting at his feet, you are in his family forever and all the benefits that come with that. And as a final word, let me just say, this is not, we have these options, crazy evil or king of our lives. And this is not a one-time decision, okay? We wake wake up every day and we consider again how we're going to contend with Jesus in our life. How how when we encounter the real Jesus, are we going to follow him? Are we going to trust his words are good or not? So that's our challenge again today, to recommit, to retrust and resit at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word through your servant Mark. Thank you for um, this account of Jesus. Thank you that through your word we can encounter the real Jesus. I pray that you would help us trust him. I pray that all the gifts and the benefits of his life and death and resurrection would become rich to us, that we would delight in them, that we would take great joy in knowing him and receiving the gifts of his salvation. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this word this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen.